0: It's a movement, but it's about people. Be the People is about we the people joining forces to reclaim and reshape the best of our nation's time-treasured traditions. Each week, we offer insightful interviews with movers and shakers from all different spheres of life. And now, please welcome Dr. Carol Swain. Welcome to another episode of Be the People.
1: Today we're going to be talking about a problem that's always with us, and that has to do with the poor. Whether we live in an urban area or a rural area, there are always people who struggle uh, to make a living, but they often live in violence-prone neighborhoods. Crime tends to be a problem among youth. The young people fail in school. And the adults have difficulty earning a living at times. And as someone who uh, escaped from poverty myself, I know that it's possible. And I have met hundreds, if not thousands of people over the course of my life who have been able to overcome the worst kinds of poverty. And today I have a guest with me He's not a stranger to Be The People. He's been on the show before. And it's Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center. Bob uh, founded the Woodson Center, I believe, in 1981. He will be able to correct me if I'm wrong. But Mm. his organization has focused on working with grassroots leaders in those communities. And what's unusual about Bob or different is that he was someone that saw the failed uh, strategies of the civil rights activists and the progressive liberals and all of those you know who have tried or have purported to help the poor and he rejects this notion I'm from the government um, here I am to help you we know that usually when the government comes to help that it means welfare dependency it's not a way out of poverty so today We're going to be talking with Bob Woodson, but we're also going to be learning about a book that he has published that's going to be released in a few days that uh, talks about his life lessons for helping the least of these. And so help me to welcome Bob Woodson back to the Be the People show.
2: Pleased to be here, Carol. Very pleased. Always a pleasure.
1: Bob, you are an amazing man, and I tell you this all the time, and I'm actually not saying this uh, to flatter you. I see you as one of the great men of history, and you leave. um, I don't say you leave because you're still here, but your footprint (laughs) is so great. Uh, And I would like for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your start. I know, like me, you were a high school dropout, uh, you had a young black male, you had everything going against you at a time when systemic racism was real. Unlike today, when they complain about it, back when you were born, it was a real phenomenon.
2: It sure was. I was born in 1937, which is a long time ago, uh, and during the Depression. And I was raised in a low-income, uh, blue-collar uh, neighborhood in South Philadelphia. It really was like a little village, a little street, of Garrett Street. But about every household had a man and a woman raising children. Elderly people were not fearful of walking the streets at night. Uh, and when we were, had to go to the store, we shopped in Black businesses that were within two blocks of our home. We got our hair cut there. We brought our vegetables. We, we, we had a self-contained community. And also the schools were segregated, but every child could read. And I know that because back then you had to read out loud in class. And no one wanted to be embarrassed by standing up before your classmates and not being able to read. But also um, the, the teachers did not live in our neighborhood. They're professionally trained. They lived in their own uh, uh, in neighborhood in, far away from where we live. There's this, this misnomer that somehow there was economic integration in the black community. Uh, I don't recall it being that way. Were the teachers um,
1: black teachers? Or they were, were they...
2: black. They were oh, okay. all black. And they were the, the, the best teachers you can imagine. Uh, we used to have uh, plays in third grade. They were held at night so that parents could attend And when you came into the auditorium, there was a table filled with lunch pails, because there were so many parents attending a little third grade play that was held at night so parents could attend. Um, And so it was a real healthy, wholesome uh, environment uh, in which I grew. Uh, My dad died when I was nine years old, and we moved out of this small neighborhood into a more middle-class neighborhood in West Philadelphia that was just opening up for Blacks. And his goal was to get us out uh, into uh, another community. West Philadelphia opened up for Blacks. And I remember almost being a cultural shock to stand in a house with a porch and to see (laughs) trees, and see traffic lights. There were no traffic lights in in South Philadelphia, just tiny streets. Uh, and there were no trees, um, because South Philadelphia was built on a, on a landfill, and therefore there were no trees. Uh, but there was love, and there was support, there was whatnot. But when my dad died, my mother had a fifth grade education, and so she pretty much... Uh, had to leave me in the care of my older sister to sign my report cards because she had to work hard. And so um, there became a a bit of a detachment from my blood family, but I cleaved to six young men who were my peers who remain friends to this day.
1: Those six young men, were they uh, equivalent to what people would call a gang today?
2: They were, except that we were all, we had middle-class values. So we didn't, we came together to just support one another, but uh, it was never a, uh, it was mutual aid and protection. It was a club. It was a club. (laughs) We were never predatory. (laughs) All right. And in fact, uh, one of those young men, uh, people my age remember, he was Gordon on Sesame Street. Matt Robinson, he was the black guy with the big afro. Right, you remember, he was one of our, he is the father of Holly Robinson, the actress. And I remember when she was born. And in fact, when he died 13 years ago, I went out to Hollywood to eulogize him. It was oh. my first time in Hollywood. And uh, we were able to come together. And so, um, but they were a year older than me And so when they graduated and went on to college, I was left unaffiliated at age 17. So I dropped out of high school and and joined the Air Force in 1954. And it was the first time that um, I had been away from home. Uh, And so that was a new experience. And it helped me to mature and to grow up. And uh, I was stationed in New York, and then I flew right to Mississippi for training. So this was my first exposure to the the Deep South. And I,
1: Bob, excuse me. Uh, now, growing up with your parents, uh, do you remember your father and? Oh yes. Okay. Did your father and mother talk about racism, the white man, and how blacks couldn't get ahead?
2: The only racial message my mother said to all of us that if nine white boys beat you up, look for the 10th one who didn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How did you interpret that?
2: That I shouldn't look at all people the same way. That tolerance. powerful. It is. To- tolerance is what she sh- There were very few moral lessons, but my father always said to his boys, a man must never abuse a woman. That is something that we don't tolerate in this family. And to this day, I remember that. And my mother said to us, if you were to meet nine white boys they they beat you up, look for the 10th one who didn't. And so that stayed with me. and so And it helped me a lot when I was in the Deep South, in Mississippi and in Florida. Because there were hostile whites, but there were also whites who reached out the hand with the hand of friendship?
1: And did you in Canada uh, when you were in the South, or even growing up, uh, uh, poor whites, or at least whites that were on your same socioeconomic status? Because it seems like your family were up, upwardly mobile. They left, uh, you know, the black neighborhood in a city. They were able to move into an integrated or changing community. So along the way, what kind of relationships did you have with white people? Well, very
2: seldom did I have any. In fact, when I went into the military at 17, I thought that Blacks were a majority.
1: (laughs) Or were you in for a cultural shock?
2: Yeah, because I mean, think about it. I I never saw white people except on occasion, uh, because my whole experience was Black, black, uh, Black, Black, Black schools, Black teachers. And then when I went to West Philly, I had my first white teachers. But the neighborhood had turned totally over to blacks. So there were, no, there were no white neighbors. By that time, you know, uh, when, when white flight took, took over. So all my, but for the first time, I did have a doctor living across the street, a teacher. So it was a more economically integrated uh, neighborhood I moved into. So we integrated into a more uh, upwardly mobile neighborhood. Uh, and that was very different uh, uh, where there, were. I remember one of the uh, girls who was a friend, I remember her mother invited us over Sunday afternoon to put on a tie and a coat. And she had the table set with flatware that we had never seen before. And she served soup, and show us which spoon to use. Oh, that is great! And uh, to this day, I remember that.
1: You know, that and, is so. I mean, that is and, so powerful.
2: Yeah, and she taught us how to sit at a dinner table, uh, and and eat with the proper forks and spoons mm-hmm. and whatnot. And uh, that was very intentional, and we all knew it. And and we. We're looking at one another as to what to do next. and
1: <laughs> We're going to go to break uh, in a second, but I can tell you that when I came out of poverty and I took my uh, first uh, my academic job at Princeton and I ended up being tenured there, I had to learn all those social skills. So I had to actually watch what other people were doing and see, you know, which side the bread plate was on so that I didn't grab someone else's role or... <laughs> Uh, I had to learn all that stuff, like on the job. So I wasn't just learning my subject matter.
2: I also had to learn the cultural stuff. Same here. That, that, that's, that, that was incredible to do. Uh, and, uh, but, I, I, but I knew she never announced it. But when I we walked in, we all knew. The very fact that I remember her name was Marsha Lindsay. I remember her mother. These, are, these make indelible impressions on you when you know that someone is reaching out to try to teach you things you need to know.
1: Well, we need to be doing that still uh, in the communities, especially, you know, as we mentor young people. Uh, We're going to take a break, Bob, when we come back. I want to talk about your civil rights background, and then we're going to get to your new book. Be the People is sponsored by Cooper Steel, a family-owned business that provides the steel fabrications for buildings across the Southeast. Sixty years ago, Kenneth and Faye Cooper founded the company in Shelbyville, Tennessee. What started as a vision is now a nationally recognized company that remains true to its founders' Judeo-Christian values and principles. Cooper Steel is committed to excellence, responsibility, and community. Its motto is Build Strong, Stand Strong. It treats its employees and customers like family. Learn more at Steel.
0: Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. Americaoutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio.
1: I'm back with my guest, uh, Bob Woodson. And so Bob, your life is fascinating. And you were in the Air Force, so that's more elite to some people. I think it's the most elite branch, but we won't spend a lot of time there. It Uh, is an elite branch. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Tell us about uh, your civil rights background. I think uh, you were sort of short-lived as a civil rights activist with the uh, Jesse Jackson, that crowd.
2: Yeah, I was, uh, when I finished... um, First of all, when I was working through undergraduate school, I worked full-time at a juvenile jail. And um, I uh, was locked behind three doors with 65 juveniles and a partner uh, with no programs. But, um, but they were pretty much like the kids I grew up with. And so I kind of fell in love with these kids. Uh, I met five of them. If I had the money, I would have adopted them. Oh. <laughs> I, I literally would have. Because How old I
1: were you at the time?
2: Um maybe 23.
1: Oh, that is so it moves my heart that you had that compassion.
2: Yeah, when what happened, I was locked behind three doors. I was commuting 30 miles to school every day and then 30 miles to work. So I was on the go. But I remember I used to take the I used to uh go to the other guards and collect money so I could buy apples and spice waffles and apple cider for the kids around October, and I would take them to unsecured areas of the jail for a little party. Now, the kids knew that I was, it was unauthorized, so if they acted up, I could have lost my job, but they never violated the trust that I, that I put in them and nor. So long story short, when I was bringing three of the kids in to clean up, all of them stood and applauded me when I came through the door and I turned on my heels and tears and stuff just flew all out all over. And so for about a half an hour, I just walked in tears, didn't understand what had, over, what had overtaken me because I'd never responded that way before. And I never really boohooed like this, but I had to walk on the grounds for half an hour to collect myself. By that time, my partner took the kids back through the institution by himself. If there was one incident, we both would have lost our jobs. But the kids were perfectly disciplined. It was then, at that moment, that I had a burning bush experience before I knew what a burning bush was. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I determined from that point on, even though I, I had, was pursuing a degree in mathematics, and I do have a degree in math and science, that I had to redirect my life to serving those kids and people like them. So, but I also knew that love needed to be expressed in a disciplined way in order for it to change people. It's not enough to love somebody. And so so I figured I'll go to the School of Social Work to learn how to use love in a more disciplined way and combine it with psychological training.
1: So what did you learn there? Did you learn anything that was helpful?
2: I, I learned some things, but for the most part, it it, it wasn't helpful. But it, it did teach me uh, to establish some kind of distance. Don't over-empathize with someone to the point where you, you get consumed by
1: their problems. Well, that's kind of sort of like what has happened with the political left, because it seems like a lot of people react with their heart and not their head. And to That's be effective, the point. you have to do
2: both. You have to do both. And love has to be given in a disciplined way. Otherwise, it becomes some schmaltzy kind of uh, stuff that injures with the helping hand. And so I learned, and so to, to, to answer your question, and then I got into the child welfare system, as, and I saw the abuse of that system to children. And then I got involved at age 20 with the Civil Rights Movement in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and I deposed a 40-year-old local uh, leader and had him voted him out, and I became at 25 the leader of the Westchester Human Relations Council, and that's where Barrett Rustin's hometown was, and I met Barrett several times. uh, uh, And so I led those demonstrations in Westchester, uh, but... I quickly became disillusioned on the whole issue of forced busing for integration. I was opposed to it and because I think the opposite of segregation is desegregation, not integration.
1: Right, right. Because
2: so if you embrace
1: that, then you're saying all black is all bad. Well, Bob, when you took that position against the forced busing, did it create enemies in the civil rights movement because that's Oh yes.
2: Focus on. Oh, yeah, they said to me, Bob, but the John Birch Society and the Ku Klux Klan agrees with you. <laughs> and so my answer was, if I like classical music, and Hitler does, I'm not going to stop liking classical music. Well, truth, truth isn't defined by who agrees or disagrees with you.
1: Well, Bob, but a you- few years ago, um, I was part of the uh, conference for the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to a lot of uh, civil rights leaders that had been part of pushing for Brown versus Board of Education. And many of them said that if they had known what would have happened to the black community, that they would not have pushed for integration. They said separate wasn't uh, the problem. It was the fact that it was unequal. And they see that what they pushed for actually helped destroy the black communities.
2: Absolutely, I knew that from the beginning because I debated Julius Chambers, uh, who was a, had a Ph.D. from Harvard, and was the head of the the NAACP Civil Rights, I mean NWC Legal Defense Fund. Right. We debated before the New York Bar Association uh, this whole issue of integration, and about halfway through the debate, I asked him a question. I said, Julius. If you have two circumstances, circumstance A where it's all black and there's a presence of educational excellence and sc- situation B where there's integrated but there's diminished excellence, where should we send our children? He said the school B. I said then this debate's over. <laughs> if you fundamentally believe sitting next to white people should be mo- is more important than quality education, then you and I have nothing to debate.
1: And could you tell our listeners a little bit about Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C., and what it accomplished during the era of segregation? Well, part of what
2: I put, when people say to me, oh, unless white people change, there's little we can do. I point to the fact that at the turn of the century, in five uh, black high schools around the country, Dunbar in in Washington, D.C., in Atlanta, in New York, New Orleans. Um, you had Dunbar High School was the black school and all black sc- high school. It, it had a, an average class of size of about 50 and it, they used used textbooks with half the budget that white schools had at the time, but yet it tested higher than every school, every white school in the city. And, and this was true all over the country. There were five black high schools: Booker T. Washington in Atlanta, and others. So there, even though we were living in segregation, we pursued excellence. We exceeded the norm. Uh, I write about uh, also in 1943, when there were no naval officers, black naval officers, and Eleanor Roosevelt forced the Navy to train some cadets. Well, the Navy selected 16 black uh, college graduates, males, to train as naval officers. But they said they were going to give them in eight weeks what they gave white cadets in 16 weeks in order to wash them out. Well, when these brothers found out what what the plan was, they covered their windows in their dorms with blankets and studied all night. When they were tested, they scored in the 90th percentile. And so the Navy said, oh, they cheated. So they retested them. They scored in the 93rd percentile. (laughs) Now, to this day, they scored the highest. They have the record of having the highest test scores in Naval Training Academy that exists to this day.
1: Well, you know, Bob, one of the things that I like to point out to people is that there were Blacks getting into elite institutions long before race-based affirmative action, and that part of the civil rights movement was about ending the discrimination where a Black student would score high, show up at a college, they would notice that they were Black or see that they were Black, and that they would uh, send them away. And so without affirmative action, you had Black achievement and so it makes no sense for people to argue that if you, didn't, if you don't lower standards, you're not going to have Black people.
2: Right. It's very interesting that when we look at disparities, it's only negative disparities that we acclaim a racism. But what about positive disparities? Black males are only 6% of the population and 80% of the NFL and the NBA. Right. But, but no one explains why is it that we are... Uh, that racism doesn't apply when it comes to positive disparities, but it does when it comes to negative disparities.
1: You're absolutely right. And we're going to take another break. And Bob, when we return, I just want you to talk about your new book and where people can get it. Carol Swain here to tell you about my good friends at Churchill Mortgage. Churchill is a national company that was started in Nashville, Tennessee, with a commitment to educating clients about how to save money and time on home loans and refinancing. Churchill can help you get out of debt. Pick up the phone and call them at 888-562-6200 or visit them on the web at churchillmortgage.com tell them Carol sent you. What if there was a book that took the mystery out of prayer? One that made it easier for people to pray God's Word with miraculous results. There is such a book, Joy Lambs, The Sword of the Spirit, The Word of God is a handbook that has changed the lives of thousands of people around the world. You can order your life-changing copy from Joy Lambs' website, The Sword of the Spirit Book, Dot com. Order Joy's book and listen to her audio prayers while you're there. I'm back with my guest, Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center, and he's also the founder of 1776 Unites, uh, that was uh, formed in reaction to the 1619 project. But what I want Bob to talk about now is his new book that will be hot off the presses soon. And you can order it, Bob.
2: Well, I just uh, please uh, to, to lessons for the least of these will be it's re- available on Amazon for pre-order now, but it'll be actually released on December fourteenth, I believe. Uh, but you can order it now. Uh, but what I try to do is recognize that it's very interesting that. Black America was better off almost in the first hundred years after slavery than we have been over the last 60 years. <laughs> Under progressive. Under progressive policies, we were actually better off than now. Uh, and so what I try to do in this book is to share with the readers all of the lessons that I have learned over the last 40 years of walking besides grassroots leaders and also all of what I have read in the past of how Blacks achieved against the odds, Um, that that the history of Black America is never defined by our disability uh, any more than anyone is defined by the worst thing that they, they did as a youth, that we are defined by our promise, not our problems. And so in this book, I I document and reflect on what are the critical lessons that we can learn. After all, people are motivated to achieve when they are uh, exposed to victories that are possible, not just always constantly reminding of injuries to be avoided. Right. I mean, if
1: I had gotten those messages that they send to young people today, I don't know that I would have been a success. I think I would have just given up. I'd still be in, Poverty in southwestern Virginia,
2: right. And so, some of the so I distilled all of the, and I've learned this literally from walking besides and watching and observing people um, bring about transformation and redemption to their own life. And so I've distilled them into ten principles, and each chapter in the book is a different principle. Um, and the first one is competence. In other words. When you go into a low-income neighborhood, the first thing professionals do, both left and right of the center, assume that because there's broken sidewalks, uh, there's abandoned homes, crime is high, that there's no agency at all, that there's no capacity of, uh, there are no healing agents that are indigenous. And so the first thing I say is never come in with the expectation that you're going to be someone's savior. Right, right. <laughs> that, you, that you that that the the that the best way to heal the human body is to strengthen its own immune system. We don't begin with a transplant. You go into a doctor's office and they say you got heart palpitations. Oh you need a transplant. No, you would run out of
1: there. We probably have enough time for one other principle. So pick one of the other principles. And for people that want to know all 10, they have to order the book, which can be ordered now. I plan to order several copies myself to give to friends for Christmas.
2: Two other principles is transparency and, and, and integrity. In other words, and humility, rather. Because if you're transparent, it's hard to be arrogant if you're transparent. If, if you can just share with your brokenness, when grassroots leaders get together, they share their path from, in, in the past 40 years, I've had conferences with blacks, white, Native America, all, never once did racial difference ever come up as an issue. That's because it's, it's brokenness and overcoming brokenness is what you'll learn about in the book.
1: Okay, get to integrity.
2: <laughs> integrity is when you look for people who are really honest and they don't lie, they don't use people, but instead that they, and they serve others uh, before they serve themselves. And so we, we tell you what to look for, people who are truly servant leaders, who, who when, and so that's one of the other very important principles of integrity.
1: Well, Bob, thank you so much. And the title of the book is "Lessons from the Least of These." And order a copy, and we will post a link so that you can go directly to Amazon after you listen to this podcast. And if you're listening on radio, you can go to my website, BeThePeopleNews dot com, and uh, see this interview on demand. Share it with your friends and order a copy of Bob's book. So Bob, thank you so much for returning to the Be The People show.
2: Just delighted to have
1: done it. Thank you. And to my listeners out there, remember, it's up to us to be the people. And Bob Woodson has spent his life being a person who has tried to transform. He's not tried. He has transformed lives and communities. Learn more about this man by purchasing his book, lessons from the least of these and be the people who change our nation and our world until next time